Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 to 15. The disciples went, went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed the cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed, oh gosh, I'm sorry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief of When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, he replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. All right, so let's hear a couple of the movies. What are the movies that we've watched the most? Which is different than your favorite movies, but maybe you've watched them a lot. Let's hear from over here. Elf? Yeah. Solid. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Forrest Gump? Maverick. Anyone else? Top Gun Maverick or another Maverick? Okay, yeah. The Bourne series, uh huh. Princess Bride? Steel Magnolias, Casablanca, classics, No Dumb and Dumber, thank you, there we go, I see you back there, I knew it, I knew someone, well the movie that I think I've seen more than any other is Shawshank Redemption, anyone else? Okay, so I absolutely love this movie, you might not know this, but when it came out first, it was an absolute flop. It lost millions and millions of dollars. Uh, Stephen King actually wrote this, like, novella, and they turned it into a movie. And I love this movie so much. Um, I probably have watched, like, in the periphery, Frozen more, but I don't claim that because it was just kind of on in the background of my life for too many years. But if you don't know this movie, uh, it's about this person named Andy Dufresne who was wrongfully convicted of murder. And while he's in prison, he is like this disruptive character. He's like this catalyst that just knocks everything off center and changes everything, including one scene that has been on my mind this week. To set it up, uh, this particular scene, these inmates were being used for free labor, as often happens in prison. And so they are tarring the roof of this building when... uh, all of a sudden, this despicable character by the name of Captain Hadley starts to complain about this inheritance that he has received. And he, what he's complaining about is the fact that he has to pay all of these taxes on this inheritance. But Andy, a former banker, has an idea. And so we're going to watch this clip now. 
Beautiful scene, right? And after watching it, I'm sorry that you guys have to hear my voice instead of Morgan Freeman the rest of this uh, sermon. I love that scene so much because uh, we have Andy Dufresne as this person who's just knocking everything off center. And in this moment, I just love that view of, of him and these men for a moment experiencing a, a different kind of deliverance. For a moment, they forgot perhaps that they were inmates, that they were being used and exploited They're just a bunch of guys on a rooftop having a beer. But Andy has this other type of drunken joy about him, just this this glow about him. And what is it? It's the fact that for him, he experienced a different kind of freedom, that in this moment, though he was in prison, that he was able to be someone of compassion, courageous compassion that served other people against all odds. What we find here in this moment, what we can find in our own lives, is there is this inner freedom that we can experience when we live out compassion and courageous service to others. This isn't just something that we find in the movie, but many of us, we've experienced this in our own life as well. That when you live with sacrificial love, when you're able to daringly care for people, that there's this paradox that we experience, that as we pour ourselves out for others, there's this inner filling that takes place. This isn't just a thing that we can see in this movie, but Viktor Frankl, he was a psychologist who wrote about this. Viktor Frankl, he wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, if, if you remember reading that or hearing about this. As a Jew that was living in a concentration camp, he began to study what was taking place during this hellish, unbelievable experience in his life. He began to observe people who were able to survive against all odds in, in a concentration camp there um, being held by the Nazis. And what he began to realize is that one of the lessons was this. He called it the last human liberty. The last human liberty was that the Nazis could take everything from them. They took his family, his wealth, his position, his status. They could take everything from each of these individuals, but there's one thing that they could never touch. It's the last human liberty, and it's this, the ability to choose how you will will respond in every single situation. That's something that they could never touch. The enemy can never put a hand on. It can never dictate the ability to choose how to react And what Frankl began to see is that people that actually flourished and actually experienced hope, they began to realize that, and they actually used that liberty to care for others. And so in his memoir, he begins to write about seeing love and compassion break out even though they were in this concentration camp, how generosity would take place, solidarity, encouragement took place, and those are the people who are able to survive. Frankel would go on and make a whole therapy built around this concept, teaching people how to examine the interior world that they have. But then he would creatively find ways to get people to serve others. What, for Frankel, what he began to realize is, is that this would combat what he would call the collective obsessive neurosis. This obsession that we have upon ourselves. And what he began to realize is that there was this paradox that the more obsessive that we are about ourselves and our own happiness, the more it escapes us and the more joyless we become. But the opposite would be true. The more that we orient ourselves 
around others, the more our souls would flourish. And so for this last series, this is the last sermon in our series, we've talked about soul care in many different ways, but today it ends with this, that soul care eventuates and deepens through compassion and service of others. This is a truth that we find in the life of Jesus. We follow the one who took a posture of a servant. And even in his final moments with the disciples, he took on this posture of washing his disciples' feet. And he said this, I have set you an example or a pattern that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you that no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What Jesus is saying with his water basin, with his towel, washing his disciples' feet, is that there is a surprising blessedness, surprising blessedness that happens by following the one who chose to serve humanity that our Savior was cloaked with compassion and service. And we will find blessedness and life with God if we follow that pattern that Jesus demonstrates. Now, there is a problem that maybe some of us have with this message, um, that maybe you've heard the message before that our job as followers of Jesus is to forget ourselves, to like neglect ourselves, to be about other people, caring for people, serving, each, uh, serving others, but denying our own needs, our own health. I'm sure maybe some of you have heard that. I even heard, uh, I was processing this series with Jen, and we were talking about the narratives that we've experienced in life, and she shared with our Vine group that one of the narratives that she had is that if she's actually experiencing comfort in life, that means that maybe she's outside of God's will because, you know, God doesn't want us to be comfortable, right? And so maybe we've internalized the same narratives. That's actually not what we're saying here. Because we have spent the last five weeks talking about how to discover soul care. We've talked about what does it mean to befriend our soul through prayer and contemplation. We've explored what does it look like to have a slowed down spirituality where we find rhythms of grace in our life. We've talked about doing interior examination. We've talked about finding relationships of mutual encouragement. And so we've spent five weeks talking about how to have a vibrant soul so that today we can talk about, it doesn't stop there. Soul care doesn't just end with the self, but we use the soul's health and the vibrancy within the soul to then get out of ourselves and into the world, to like find ourselves being healthy and help people prepared to go in the world and to serve with compassion and mercy and grace because we've experienced it and internalized it ourselves. And what happens Something profound takes place, that as we pour ourselves out, our souls begin to thrive. Maybe you've experienced this through opportunities that you've had in your own life, you know, like the mission trip experience or other service opportunities, like where at the end of the day, you might physically be really, really tired, but there is this inner vibrancy that you have knowing what it meant to be poured out for the sake of others. It's a different kind of soul care. It's one that eventuates and deepens through compassion and service to others. This is actually um, subtly found and beautifully found on what took place on Palm Sunday, what we've rehearsed today. Palm Sunday replays a moment where Jesus' life detailed in Matthew 21, as well as in other books. And so this is the, the beginning of Jesus' final week. He now enters into Jerusalem. 
He has spent the last three years traveling, teaching, healing people, providing for others, displaying a different kind of kingdom. And so now on this day, he enters into Jerusalem with the city waiting for him. Like they were expectant. They were, they were thrilled that he was coming because they had great expectations. One of the reasons why, may I, uh, that they take these palms is that uh, years before that, someone else led a revolt against the occupiers of Israel. And when this individual led this revolt, they were successful. They kicked out the people who were uh, occupying Israel. And as they entered, they laid down their palm branches in this victorious, violent leader who led this uprising was greeted by the masses with palm branches like this victor. And so on this day, the people had their expectations of Jesus coming back and leading them into a different kind of salvation, a salvation from uh, the Roman power, the empire to kick them out. And so they are laying down their palm branches with that kind of expectation. And we find here on Jesus, he enters in with this borrowed donkey, a.k.a. stolen donkey, if you read the text. It seems like he just took the donkey, right? It's fine, it's Jesus, he can get away with it. He rides into Jerusalem, and the crowds greet him with shouts of Hosanna, which is Savior, and that's what they were welcoming with. Now, think how amazing it would have been for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem with the people actually declaring Jesus' rightful name of Savior, the one who will be the deliverer, him actually beholding this rightful title. But what did Jesus do? Well, he walks through the crowd, and he goes to the temple, and he gets really angry. He begins to overturn tables there in the temple. This is what the text says. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. What is making Jesus so angry? Does he, is he just not a church guy? Bad parking, ran out of donut holes. Like, why is he so angry in this moment? Well, I, for me, it's the emphasis is on the word money changers and doves. There was this whole racket that was set up at the temple that people, when, when they came there, they had to make their sacrifices. But a lot of people, they traveled for a long, long distance to go there, to be made right with God. And so they would come to the temple, and they would have to purchase these animals to make their sacrifices. They would have to, to change their money and buy doves there. So imagine being at an international airport. You just flew over to Italy. When you arrive, you need to exchange some money. You may need to make your essential purchase, purchases. But you know, at airports, like the Exchange rate's just crazy. It's like a different total market that they are living by. And so when you exchange your money, when you buy your essentials, it's just absolutely exploiting you for profit. That's actually what's happening here at the temple. When people are going to the temple to make their sacrifice just to be with God in God's presence, to be made right with God, people were exploiting them for profit. People were traveling all over the region to go to the temple to worship. And people saw that as an opportunity to take from them. And who does the system benefit? Well, who are the gatekeepers? It was those in religious power, those who, who were located there, who had the ability to exploit others. And who are they exploiting? Those who are just desperate to be in God's presence, especially the poor, who couldn't afford the right to be 
deemed clean and holy and good enough. And so perhaps there in that moment, this is why Jesus was so, so angry. Sadly, we can find this in our day today too, how religious systems often benefit the powerful, the affluent, the well-positioned, and those who are marginalized, they're the ones exploited. Those who are just desperate to be in God's presence, desperate to be in God's community, those are the ones who find it so difficult to be in. But I am grateful for Jesus, the one who is willing to flip over all those tables and declare, this house, my house, is to be a house of prayer and not just a place to rob one another. You are making it a den of robbers. Part of Jesus' ministry, and part of the ministry that we need to continue, is to flip around the systems of religious framework that benefit the powerful and the privileged, to flip it around so that we can see what happens next, what Jesus does next. Verse 14, this is right after this moment. So Jesus gets really, really awkward, the social awkward scene of flipping over these tables. Imagine the monies and the birds flying everywhere. And then what happens? This is what happens in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and Jesus healed them. Now, we can just skip over that, right? Just read it. This is what Jesus does so commonly. But notice this. Jesus clears out the temple He makes this moment, he flips things upside down, and then what takes place is the blind and the lame come to him to experience healing. I love this, guys. I feel like word gets out that Jesus is in town, and with Jesus comes healing. No price for admission, no privileging the powerful. The blind and the lame, those who are in the margins of that society, begin to flock into the temple, and Jesus gets to work. Healing breaks out. People are restored, and absolutely everyone is happy about it. Not not, not really. This is what happens in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This selfless, compassionate work It threatens the order, and the praise of the masses moves uh, from the crowd over to here. And who is still praising Jesus? Do you all notice that? Who is still singing God's praise? The children. The children are. Still singing out Hosanna. The lame, the blind, the forgotten, and the cherished course chorus of children are still declaring who Jesus was. Seeing Jesus, God in flesh, I love this idea of like the the good, respectable adults in the corner of the room with their arms crossed and Jesus just reveling in the praise and the ability to pour himself out in compassionate care for others. Uh, the, The religious leaders say this, do you hear what these children are saying, Jesus? And Jesus replied, yes, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And to finish this, next in Matthew chapter 21, the writer adds this bizarre story. Jesus is walking and notices a tree that doesn't have any fruit, and Jesus looks at it and curses it. I guess he's hangry, and 
this, tr- this tree, it withers from the roots. It's now cursed and won't bear fruit again. What's going on here? All right, so let's look at, let's look at this progression here. This progression is this. So we have the triumphant entry where Jesus is being praised by the masses as it was expectation of him being this particular kind of savior. Then Jesus goes to the temple to reorder the religious trappings. What takes place after that? Then healing breaks out of the marginalized and the praise is received from the children of that community. And then finally, Jesus curses this fruitless tree. What in the world is happening on this Palm Sunday? Well, I believe that Palm Sunday demonstrates this to us, that if we are serious about following Jesus, if we're serious about discovering soul care, if we are serious about knowing what it means to abide in Christ, to be a part of that kingdom, then we have to be serious about compassion and mercy. We have to, we have to be able to be like Jesus, to see the trappings of power and position to hear the hollowness of empty praise and to flip over every single table that stands in the way of the releasing of God's compassion and mercy in this world. We will reject the temptation of self-promotion and disregard all forms of empty religion so that we can attune our ears to hear what really matters in this world. That is the fruit that Jesus is after. And this is how Jesus began his work, his, his week. That this is the entrance with the crowds and the palm branches. That could have served his ego, but I don't think it would have served his soul. Instead of reveling in the praise of the crowds or capitalizing on that momentum, Jesus got to work. The work of the kingdom was more than a popularity contest. The work of the kingdom is compassion. I could almost see Jesus cynically nodding at the praise of the crowds who were shouting Hosanna, knowing how empty it would be in just a matter of days, how they would turn on Jesus and hear the blind and the lame and those who are forgotten. They find themselves in God's house and they find healing. I think this is what filled Jesus' soul, especially on this week where it would be so trying and so demanding. The reason why this is so important is that as we conclude this series, after we spent five weeks talking about self-care and discovering relationships of encouragement, we can make this whole series about just me, about my life. You know, we could like turn this self-care, soul-care thing into like looking at a microscope and ensuring that I am healthy and whole. But I really think following Jesus is not just looking through a microscope, but it's actually looking at a telescope and seeing the big picture, seeing God's kingdom displayed in grandeur. It's not that we don't matter. It's just like when you experience looking at the stars in the sky. It's not like you feel like you don't matter in the world, but you realize you're part of something so much bigger. And so for us, we have to learn how to marry this work that we did in those first five weeks of contemplation, of Sabbath, of wholeness, of healing, we have to marry that with compassion and service and ministries of mercy. There's a temptation that we could experience to choose one or the other, like the debate that we could have, like what's the most important thing for the church to do today? One person could say, well, we need to be people of prayer, right? That sounds really important. Meanwhile, someone else goes, what about digging wells? Like, people are dying of thirst. 
Someone else might say, well, what about Scripture? We need to learn Scripture, know God's Word. Someone else could go, there are people in our city without homes that are on the streets. There are people who are lonely or needing community. There are people that need the gospel, like, done, like, actually lived out in our presence. And the reality is, we don't have to choose one. Like, the life of being with Jesus is about both marrying contemplation and compassion and care, social justice, and deep inner formation. I think deep soul care is when we marry those two things, contemplation and compassion. Marrying sacred solitude and sacred service. This reminds me of a tightrope walker. It seems like the last thing that someone needs when they're walking on a tightrope is one more thing to carry. You know, it's like, that reminds me of Jim Gaffigan when someone asked him, what is it like having four kids? He's like, imagine you're swimming in the ocean with three kids and someone throws you a fourth. Like, that's the last thing you need uh, in that moment. Uh, The last thing you would think that someone needs is to carry this huge, huge bar. But the reality is, is it allows you to be centered. And the longer the bar is, the more balanced you become. It's about experiencing this kind of the polarity and the balance of it all. For us to navigate this world, we need to discover a balanced life of soul care through self-care and selfless acts. And the more we live that in extremes, the more we're able to walk through this world and follow Jesus without losing ourselves along the way. We don't go into this world to change it. We don't have a domineering posture nor do we seek to exploit this world for our own soul's sake. Uh, But it's actually driven out of compassion. It's driven out of Jesus' love. I love, love what Robert Mulholland, he wrote. He said, there's a difference between being in the world for God and being in God for the world. We don't go into the world to conquer it like some sort of crusade that we have from God. That's kind of what the crowds expected from Jesus on that Palm Sunday, this domineering military force that, that they would have. No, we're not, our calling is not to be in the, in the world for God, but to be in God, to find this deep abiding relationship in God for the sake of the world. Because we know that God has deep abiding love for this world. So as we find our connection In God, then we are compelled to go into this world provoked by Jesus' compassion and mercy for all of God's beloved. My hope is in this series that we have discovered what it means to have our souls alive, discovered a life in God, but being in God means that we follow Jesus who went into this world for the sake of compassion and sacrificial love. This is the inner freedom that we can find in this life of service. When we get out of ourselves into this grander, bigger story, or as G.K. Chesterton wrote, imagine how much larger your life would be if yourself could be smaller in it. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always played. You would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. That's the type of story, the bigger story that Jesus wants to invite us in. People filled from the inside out with souls that know what it means to be found in God and then sent into this world. May we walk through this world 
with souls filled, ready to be poured out for the sake of others. May we turn over every table, holding back people from experiencing Christ's mercy, and may our lives be marked by the fruit of justice and of mercy and compassion. This is what your souls have been made for. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.